The old saying is that patience is a virtue. And while that may be true, patience is not a virtue I possess in large measure. This always seemed to be true around Christmas time as a kid. I hated waiting to Christmas to find out what I had under the tree. Um, it made me anxious. It made me frustrated. Um, so I, I actually kind of developed a way to get around that. I, I became a, a master of the unwrap and wrap without anybody knowing I had unwrapped. Christmas Day rarely came with me having any surprises under the tree, which I was totally fine with. Um, like I said, patience is not a virtue I possess in great quantities. Now, we would all probably acknowledge waiting is hard. We would also acknowledge there are some things that are worth waiting for. Things so wonderful that they make the wait worthwhile. Today we're going to look at something. Of course, we're in this Christmas season talking about the coming Christ. We're going to see what the entire world had to wait for and why Jesus' coming was worth the wait. Open your Bible to Matthew 1, verse 18 is where we're going to start. It's page 733 in a few Bible. When you find that, I'm going to get a stand on the reading of God's Word. Matthew 1 and 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child, the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a, a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in hers of the Holy Ghost. She shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from the sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and he took unto him his wife. And knew her not till she had brought forth a firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. The title of the message this morning is The Christ Who Came. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Lord, we come and we need you today to guide us. Lord, our hearts and our minds are deeply distracted, for there is much going on this week, much it's already gone on, things to prepare for. And in this time we have, this short time, let your Holy Spirit come and focus our hearts and our minds upon you. Give us ears that would hear what you have for us. Lord, give us hearts that would receive your word. Let the word sink way down deep in our hearts that would bring forth good fruit into our lives. Father, this Christmas season is it's an amazing thing to know that you look down Upon a people you created that really did nothing but rebel against you. Despite our sin, despite our in some ways seeming to despise your your rules and your your ways for our life, you sent your son to come to this earth, to be born in a miraculous way, to do great miracles, and then to die. Pay the penalty that our sins had deserved. May we not be complacent about this. 
May we not be lukewarm in our devotion to You. May we not rest on the past and be like the people of Sardis that have a reputation for being alive, but truly we're dead inside. Renew a sense of wonder at the birth of Christ. Renew a sense of wonder at the death of Christ. Renew a sense of wonder at the resurrection of Christ in our lives. Help us to be zealous for you in all things and in all ways. Let us be joyful in our service to you. Let us be in awe of your greatness and of your goodness. Let us live with hope because you are the God who can do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or imagine. Fill me this morning with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech that I can speak your words and your ways for your glory. God is all we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Gospel of Matthew is written by a former tax collector to other Jews. Matthew's account of the life and the ministry of Jesus had the specific purpose for showing Jesus as the promised Messiah. This is demonstrated, the most common saying in Matthew is, this was done that it might be fulfilled. In doing this, Matthew was showing Jesus had fulfilled messianic promises, that he was what the Old Testament had promised Jesus was the fulfillment. Now, the prophecies of the Messiah, they began at the very beginning. But if you were here early in the series, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and He put a man named Adam and a woman named Eve in a garden, and they had the best of all things. They had a near-perfect relationship with God. They had a near-perfect relationship with one another. They had a perfect for their, a rule for their lives, I mean, a purpose for their lives. And they had one rule, not to eat of the tree, uh, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that was in the middle of the garden. And all things went well until Satan came along and tempted them and tempted Eve by telling her how good the fruit looked, that God was keeping them from something good. And Eve saw, she took, she ate, and she gave to her husband, and he ate as well. The moment that they ate, sin, death, and separation from God entered the world. All these things had never existed before. They were never really a part of God's plan. When God called Adam and Eve on their sin, He he gave a promise that one day the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And this was the very first promise of the Christ who would come into the world. And as the Old Testament progresses, God gives more and more pictures, more and more revelation of what the Christ would be like, what things he would do. And the books that we call the Gospels, they declare the time of waiting is over. They declare Jesus is the promised Messiah. And as they declare Jesus is the promised Messiah, they begin to explain what He has done, what He will do, what that means for us in our lives. And as they do so, what it declares over and over again is that Jesus was indeed worth the wait. Right? And so the key truth today is a really simple idea. Jesus is the promised Messiah, and He was worth the wait. Right? That the world waited thousands of years, but it was worth it because of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. In this passage, it gives us three reasons. Jesus is worth the wait. First, Jesus is God. Right? When we look at Matthew and Luke's account together, we see... That there was some time after Joseph and Mary were engaged, Mary received a visit from the angel Gabriel. The Gabriel had a very interesting marriage, or interesting 
message from Mary. She was going to give birth to a child and he would be the Jewish Messiah and the Savior of the world. Now Mary was rightly concerned and confused because she was a virgin uh, and she had no idea how this would happen. And the angel told her the Holy Spirit would come upon her and the power of God would overshadow her and the child would be born in that supernatural way. And so Mary surrenders to the will of the Lord to do whatever he wants. Now, since Mary is engaged to Joseph at some point, she's going to have to tell Joseph what's going on because it's going to become obvious on its own. And in Jewish culture at this time, people were often engaged for several years. And during the engagement process, people saved themselves from one another. They abstained from any sort of sexual relationship because fornication is a sin. Now, Matthew's account of Jesus' birth focuses on Joseph once he's told. But Mary, at some point, she goes to Joseph. She tells him what's going on. She presumably tells him about the angel's visit, about all that's going on. She has not been unfaithful. She has been pure. And this is a God thing that's happening within her. Now, the dilemma Joseph faces, I guess, is twofold. One, can he believe that? I mean, there's no Old Testament comparable to this. So, can he believe that Mary's telling the truth. And then if he can't, it brings the other dilemma, what, what is he going to do? Because if he decides to marry Mary, then it's going to give an impression to all the people of the town they've been unfaithful to one. They've been unfaithful to their vows. They have fornicated. They are both sinners. It is going to be a knock against his reputation. It's going to be a knock against her reputation. It is going to be a blight on the child from the time that he is born. If he breaks off the engagement, well, that's a problem too because there were really strict consequences for adultery, for fornication in the Old Testament. If he made an issue of it, said Mary has been unfaithful, she is pregnant, it's not mine, the consequence would be Mary would be taken out to the gates of the city and she would be stoned to death. So Joseph is in a dilemma. What is he going to do? And as he ponders it, he decides to break off the engagement quietly, it says in verse 19. And, and, and I don't know everything there is about breaking it off quietly, but apparently this would be the equivalent of working out a, a settlement out of court. right? It would be to, to work out something where the marriage, the engagement was broken off, but nobody would ever really talk about why or what had happened. He wouldn't make an issue of her pregnancy. She wouldn't make an issue of the fact that he had made promises to her as being a spouse, being engaged to her. And what this would do, this, this would protect Mary's reputation for a period of time until she became pregnant or it became obvious she was pregnant. But mostly what it would do is it would protect her from the consequences of fornication. It would present, prevent her from being stoned uh, and being killed. And while he ponders this and he's making this decision, an angel comes to him to let her know, to let him know Mary has not been unfaithful. That the child that is born in Mary, it is exactly as she has said, that she is with child of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit had overshadowed her and it would ensure that this birth was miraculous because this guy was not going to be an ordinary man. That he was going to be the Messiah. He was going to be as... As Isaiah says in Isaiah 9, the mighty God, right? He was going to come and fulfill all that the Old Testament had talked about. Jesus was not an ordinary man, 
Jesus was not a prophet. He was not a miracle worker. He was not a teacher. He was and he is God in the flesh. Now, this is one of the chief claims of Christianity. Right? This is a one of the basic claims of Christianity. This is one of those areas where people can disagree, but if they disagree with this, they depart from Christianity. Right? I mean, we can disagree with our Nazarene brothers over several things, but they're minor things. But we, we disagree, but we're still brothers and sisters in Christ. But when it comes to the issue of Jesus and whether or not He was just a guy, or whether or not he was God in the flesh, that is not one of those issues. This is a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. This is why it's important for Jesus to have been born of a virgin, as the Bible says here. Because if Jesus were not born of a virgin, he would not be God. And if Jesus were not God, he could not have been born of a virgin. Now, it's common in our day for liberal scholars who profess faith in Jesus to say, Jesus wasn't God, and he never made claims like that for himself. That Jesus, at no point in his teaching in his life, did Jesus ever say anything that would cause people to believe he was God. Now, time would not permit me this morning to use all of the passages where Jesus does, in fact, claim to be God. I I just want to show one, right? Jesus says in John 10 and 30, I and my Father are one. Now, this is a big claim. He is claiming God is his father. He is claiming to be one with the father. He is claiming to be God. And we know the people who heard him understand the claim. Because look at what happened. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered, many good works have I showed you from my father. Which of these do you seek to stone me for? And the Jews answered, not for a good work, but for blasphemy. Because thou being a man makest thyself God. See, when Jesus said, I and my Father are one, He was claiming to be equal with God. He was claiming to be God. And His critics who heard Him understood that. And it angered them to the point that they were willing to kill Him for it. Because that was a capital offense in Jewish culture. Now this is just one example among many that we could look at. Scripture, the Gospel accounts are filled With examples of Jesus claiming to be God. His followers understood that. And they preached and they taught and they wrote in the New Testament letters. Jesus was God. Now the reason this is important. Is because if Jesus is God. We have to make a decision about everything he has said. And everything he has done. right? Because if Jesus is just a teacher. Well, we can hold him out as one teacher among many, and we can say, well, I don't like that, but I like this. But if Jesus is God, then there are certain claims that brings to my life. There are certain responsibilities, certain things when he says, thou shalt, that I must. And if Jesus has claimed to be God, we have to to think carefully about our response. C.S. Lewis made a great response about this. And he said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a good moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, this is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic 
on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and call him a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The claims Jesus has made about himself force us to choose. Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he Lord? He must necessarily be one of those three. As Lewis said, Jesus has not left open. I am a good moral man. I am a good teacher. For he has made great claims about who he is and what he came to do. We must choose. Who is Jesus? The testimony of Jesus is I am God. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He was worth the wait because Jesus is God. Secondly, Jesus alone saves. Jesus is God, but Jesus alone saves. Now, one of the most disliked doctrines of Christianity is the uniqueness of Christ. Right? That Jesus alone saves. If you want to say Jesus is a way, that's mostly tolerable and acceptable. Jesus is one way among many. He's your way. He's maybe even the best way. But to say Jesus is the way, the only way, well, that is a much despised, much maligned doctrine in our day. Yet, if we're going to take Scripture seriously, we have to accept this is what Scripture teaches. But, and I, we're not going to look at these verses, but you can look them up later if you want to write those down. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. Jesus makes this claim about exclusivity himself. I alone am the path to God and salvation. Then the Apostle Peter preaches in Acts chapter 4 that there is salvation in no other name except in the name of Jesus. Paul says there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And John says that he who hath the Son has life and he who does not have the Son does not have life. So Jesus made the claim to say and that he alone offered salvation and every one of his disciples understood that and that is exactly what they taught. So there is no legitimate question. The Bible teaches Jesus alone saves. The only question we might have is why? Why is it there is not salvation in Islam, in Buddhism, in Mormonism, in Jehovah's Witness, in anything else except Jesus? Well, the answer is found here in verse 21. He shall bring forth a son, shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus came to save people from their sins. See, this is the reason Jesus alone saves. Because Jesus alone solves the problem of sin. One of the consequences of an Adam and Eve's disobedience is every person born after them was born with a sinful nature. They were born separated to God. Separated from God. And so we are all born with something within us that says, you will not rule over me. Right? There is something within all of us that says no one is going to tell me what to do. Not even God. 
But not only do we have this within us that says no one will rule over me, we have demonstrated that no one will rule over us. Right? We have demonstrated no one will tell me what to do by doing things God has said we ought not to do. Right? That all have sinned. That's what the Bible says. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we are not only sinners by birth, we are sinners by choice. And that choice of sin has brought a consequence into our life. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Now, here's the deal. It's at this point that some will say, but I don't feel like a sinner. I feel like I'm a pretty good person. I don't think I have chosen to do those things. I don't feel I deserve the wages of sin. Certainly not death. I may not be perfect, but I'm not what you're saying. The reality is those who feel this way, feel this way because they don't understand sin. They don't understand God's standard for righteousness. So if I'm going to say all of sin, and the Bible says that, if the Bible's going to say all of sin, then we've got to know what is sin. Because if I don't feel like I've sinned, you're going to have to prove it to me. right? So what is sin? Well, the Bible answers that. Whoever committed sin transgresses the law, for sin's the transgression of the law. The basic idea of sin is breaking God's law. As it's meant here, we could sum up the law in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments make up God's absolute standard of righteousness. Right? So all the, the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots of Exodus chapter 20. Now, if we sin, we transgress the law. So how do we know if we transgress the law? We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But understand something. That the law, the law passes on a pass or fail scale. Right, so there's ten commandments. Let's say you kept nine of them perfectly all of your life. You just broke one. You still fail. Right? It is not the size of the violation that matters. It is just the violation itself. In order to be righteous by the law, what has to happen is I have to have kept all ten commandments every moment of my life. From the day I was born until the day I die. And I can't ever slip, not even a little bit. Now, some would say, well, I've done that. Maybe. But then we get to Romans 3, 19 and 20, which says, the more we know God's law, the more we understand we haven't kept God's law. Right? Because people, when they say, I've kept, oh, I've done the Ten Commandments, I've done that, they don't understand the Ten Commandments. Right? So, for instance, Exodus 20 and 13 says, thou shalt not kill. Well, easy enough. I have never taken another human life. Check. I've kept that one. Ah. But Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, He goes deeper than what we would call the letter of the law to what we would call the spirit of the law. Jesus says that if we have been angry at someone without a cause, without a righteous cause, or we have condemned someone in our anger, or we have treated someone contemptuously in our anger. See, we've broken the law. Because the law, the letter of the law is thou shalt not kill. But the heart behind it is not to let anger control you in any sort of way. Right? So, this is what to me what's important in this is to see how different God's standard is from man's standard. Man's standard says anger is often justified. And treating people with contempt and condemning others, that is a legit and a righteous 
response most of the time. And yet Jesus says not so. Jesus says if you're angry without a good righteous reason, and we don't have time to get into what that is, but sufficient to say it's not because they have 20 items in the 10 item or less line. It's not because they cut us off in traffic or they vote differently than we do. But if we're angry without cause, a just cause, if we condemn people in our anger, I hope you go to hell, you deserve hell. Or we treat them contemptuously, you're, you're an idiot, you're a moron. Then Jesus says, we have violated the spirit of the law. And we are guilty before God. And we have earned the wage of sin. And we have no way out on our own. The greatest violation of God's commandments, though, comes in regards to the first four commandments, which deal with our relationship with God. I mean, the very first commandment is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Again, a cursory examination says, Sure. I mean, I've never worshipped Allah, or Baal, or Buddha, or any of the Hindu gods. But the command to have no other god before Yahweh is, is more, far more, than just don't worship a pagan god. But to, to have kept this commandment, what you would have had to have done is every moment of your life, from birth to death, God would have had to have been the supreme object of love and devotion and motivation for your life. And it couldn't be just in word. It can't be just, I love the Lord my God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. It has to be lived out in our actions. And it has to be lived out in our reactions. You know, the Bible says that there are righteous ways to react to stressors and to people, and there are unrighteous ways. So for me to have lived out to have no other God before me, that means in those instances when I reacted, it would have had to have been a righteous reaction every single time. It meant my words. I would have to have righteous words. Every single word I spoke would have had to have been exactly what God wanted me to speak in that moment. My priorities. I would have had to have had God-centered priorities in every area of my life, every moment of my life. I would have had to have had God-centered values every moment of my life, every day of my life. So, the question... Have you done that? Or, or have you ever at some point done what you wanted to do instead of what God wanted you to do? Have you ever said something you knew you shouldn't have, but you wanted to say it so you said it? Have you ever reacted in a way you knew wasn't what God wanted you to do, but it's what you wanted to do? Has there ever been a person in your life that egged you on, come on, let's do this, let's do this, and you knew in your heart it's not something God wanted you to do, but you did it for their sake, then guess what? If you've done any of those things or more, you have put something or someone over God. You have sinned. You have violated God's law. And you are guilty. And you have earned the wage of sin, and that wage is death. And if we took the time to go to Exodus 20 and looked at all ten commandments, we would see it play out every single time. There is not a person in here this morning that has kept even one commandment perfectly all of their lives. The better we know it, the better we understand it, the more clear it is we have failed. We have sinned. So where does that leave us? It leaves us each 
and everyone condemned. Because we have each and every one sinned by breaking God's law. And we have each and every one earned the wage of that sin, which is death. And left unchanged, the eternal wrath of God will be poured out upon us in eternity. Because we have sinned. When the angel told Joseph Jesus would come to save people from their sins, he was saying Jesus would come to save people from the terrible wrath of God our sins have earned. I mean, that's what the cross was all about. I mean, at this time of the year, we do focus on the baby in the manger. But the baby in the manger wasn't the point. The Christ on the cross, that was the point. See, the cross, it wasn't a surprise. Jesus came for the sole purpose to die. Peter says he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. His death, it wasn't the death of a martyr. His death wasn't the death of someone who had made the wrong people angry. He he didn't die because of injustice in rulers. He died for your sin and for mine. And as he hung on the cross... All of God's wrath against all of our sin was poured out upon Him. In essence, Jesus took hell on the cross so that we would not have to. And He endured our hell until He cried out, It is finished. And He was taken off the cross. He was laid in a tomb where He only stayed for three days. Saying it is finished, he had saying he had fully satisfied the penalty for the sins of the world. And now redemption can be given. Now people can be forgiven for their sins. Now people can be saved from the wrath to come. See, God offers salvation. He offers redemption and eternal life with him instead of judgment in hell. But it is only offered through faith. In Jesus. Jesus alone saves because Jesus alone paid the penalty for sins. Other religions may seem to offer an escape from hell. But it's an illusion. It's smoke and mirrors of a magician's tricks. It's not real. Because no one in any other religion died for the sins of the people rose on the third day to prove that they were the Savior of the world. Jesus alone saves. Again, this is a a key doctrine of Christianity. This isn't something we can agree to disagree on and we're all okay. Salvation is in Christ alone. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. There is one mediator between God and man, and that is Christ Jesus. No one else. Everything rises and falls on Jesus. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He was worth the wait because Jesus alone saves. And then finally, Jesus is always with us. Jesus is God. Jesus alone saves. Jesus is always with us. Matthew quotes a promise from the Old Testament, verse 23. The virgin shall be with child, shall bring forth a son, shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God 
with us. But Jesus came to be God with us. Now, there are lots of places in Scripture that show this. This is a good one. John 14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He, he came to live among us. Think about that. God became a man and dwelt among us. God came down. He fully and completely became human. And yet He did this without ceasing to be God. He wasn't 50% man and 50% God. He was 100% man and 100% God. You say, well, how does that work? I do not know. That is the mystery and the miracle of the Incarnation. But it is in this way that Jesus came to dwell among us. What this means is, He is not a God who is above us. And He is not a God who is below us. But He is a God who is among us. This is part of what separates Christianity from all other religions. A, a pastor I, I frequently listen to named David Platt tells a story going to India and visiting with several religious leaders from different religions. And they were all talking about what God is like. So he came up and he got involved in the conversation. And they, were, they described God as being up on a mountain. And that the Hindus, they go up on this side of the mountain. And the Christians, they go up on this side of the mountain. And the Muslims, they go up on this side of the mountain. Platt said, so what you're saying is, in the end, we're all going to get to where God is. And they said, exactly, you understand. He said, but what if? What if the God on the mountain came down to where we were and walked with us throughout the way up the mountain? They said, ooh, that would be incredible indeed. And he said, now that is the difference between Christianity and everything else. See, God didn't wait up on the mountain for us to trek our way up to Him. He came down to us. We saw this in the very beginning. Adam and Eve sinned and they hid. And what did God do? He went looking for them. God came to us. How amazing is that? And He didn't just come to be with us once. He came to be with us always. He, he will never leave us nor forsake us. The Bible promises that over and over again. That the, in, a, in a greater sense, this is the doctrine of omnipresence. That God can be everywhere at once at the same time. And while that's a, a great thing to think about, there is... More to it than what we think about than just a theological doctrine. Right? Because we can take things like this and we can say, that's real. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Do you ever walk through the valley of the shadow of death? Do you ever go through hard and trying times? Do difficulties ever come? We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be overcome. Why? Not because we're great, but because our God is with us. Now, and I say this often when I talk about this, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I heard a story years ago, and it was about the sheep that strays. And the shepherd chases the sheep and brings it back and chases the sheep and brings it back. And eventually, he takes his rod and staff and he breaks the thing's leg. So that it can't run away anymore. And they say, and that's how Jesus is to you. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. There is nothing comforting about Jesus having a great big stick going to use to break my legs and keep me from running away. I don't, I find that is a terrifying, I will have nightmares tonight if I think about that. That's not the picture. Think about Jesus in John chapter 10. He is the good shepherd, right? 
He gives his life and he fights away what? The, the wolf and the thief. Now, the, the hireling flees, but not the good shepherd. The rod and the staff isn't there to break our legs when we try to go away. The rod and the staff is there to fight on our behalf. To fight the wolf, to fight the sheep. And when we do go astray, to reach out and grab us and pull us back, yes. He is always with us, working to keep us on the right track, to protect us, to guide us, to keep us where we need to go. There is just great comfort in knowing, no matter where we go and no matter what we go through, God is with us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Life is hard. Life will always be hard in this life. But we don't go through it alone. Our God came down the mountain to be with us. And He never leaves us. And He is always with us. And He has a rod and a staff that He uses to fight for us. And He will see us through until we Make it to the house of the Lord where we will dwell forever. Oh, friends, there's comfort in knowing Jesus is always with us. So let me ask you, have you embraced the Christ who came? Do you know Him as your God? Have you received Him as your Savior? Have you experienced Him as your Emmanuel? If you cannot honestly answer yes to these questions, then make today the day you cry out to Jesus. The Bible says all who call upon the name of the Lord will be Saved. In this moment right now. Our God has come down off the mountain. And he's coming to us and saying come. Go with me. I will save you. I will guide you. I will be with you. Choose. Today. To take his hand. And follow him. Bow our heads and close our eyes. I want to give a time to respond.